Like many of you, I love hearing and telling a great story. When our kids were young, they used to enjoy the stories that I made up at the bedtime. Um, Because we lived on Emerson Drive, uh, we were often visited by the Emersonian dwarfs who lived in the sewer outside of our house. Or we would have all kinds of adventures in the land of Cremonia. And we traveled there by uh, getting on uh, a magic green Schwinn bicycle. Now, today, of course, the bedtime ritual has been replaced by storytelling around the dinner table when the kids come home for a holiday or a weekend. And as you might imagine, they just begin to roll their eyes when I start to spin a yarn with, well, when I was your age. But stories are powerful, aren't they? And who among us hasn't enjoyed a great story? Mother Goose, fairy tales when we were young, or Aesop's fables, or Veggie Tales, or SpongeBob SquarePants, you know, as we aged. The fiction of Tolkien, or C.S. Lewis, or Hemingway, or John Grisham, or James Patterson, or J.K. Rowling today. And why is Hollywood a multi-billion dollar business? Because people love stories. Now, Jesus' stories have been recounted and retold in perhaps more languages and more cultures than any other. But his stories weren't meant for mere entertainment. He told stories to teach profound truth in an unforgettable way. You see, his hearers were expecting the kingdom of God to come, and they'd been waiting for centuries with the promises of the prophets ringing in their ears. But when Jesus launched his ministry with the announcement that the kingdom had come, they couldn't grasp it because it didn't look anything like what they were expecting. And so he had to re-educate them about the kingdom, and he did it with parables, by telling stories. Now, this morning, we're continuing our sermon of ser- series, a uh, series of, of messages, a sermon series that we've titled Snapshots of the Kingdom. And we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in your New Testament, which records a collection of nine parables that Jesus gave to help his audience more fully grasp the nature of the kingdom. And so our purposes over these weeks are to enlarge our understanding of what he called the mysteries of the kingdom. Secondly, to actually change how we live as a result of encountering these truths, hoping that we might experience more of the real life that Jesus said was ours to have. And then thirdly, to experience signs and wonders and miracles. Because every time Jesus and later the early church proclaimed the kingdom, signs and wonders followed in the lives of people. Now, last week, in the parable of the farmer scattering seed, we saw the kingdom has come into the world to be received by some and rejected by others. And so we've been encouraged to keep sowing lots of seed, to suffer rejection as normal, but as well to anticipate the harvest. And today we're going to see that Jesus is encouraging us to not be surprised. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled and grateful for who you are and all that you do, that you invite us into your presence at the start of a brand new week, setting aside everything else that competes for our attention to say we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you and what has become fundamental to our life, loving and worshiping you, connecting with one another. Be present on this campus, Lord, and and bring your kingdom in the ways you know we need better than ourselves. We're grateful, Lord, for our history in the vineyard. We're grateful for what you're doing among us, and we're We're humbled, Lord, by the invitation to partner with you in the days ahead and put power on your word now to our lives in your name. Amen. Well, there are certain passages in the Bible that you seldom hear anything about. 
Some hide in the shadows of more well-known verses. For instance, John 3.16, you probably, many of you know it by heart, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it dwarfs an equally powerful statement in verse 17 that hardly anybody ever quotes. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Still other verses are just difficult to understand, and so we kind of just skip over them. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if the dead be not raised, then what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? What is that about? And still other texts are just downright confusing. Take, for instance, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Don't answer the foolish argument of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Be sure to answer the foolish argument of fools, or they'll become wise in their own estimation. So what is it? Answer them or don't answer them? I don't know. There are also a few sayings of Jesus that have proven enigmatic over the centuries, and so consequently we just seldom hear any messages about them. And such is the case with the two kingdom parables that we're going to look at today. But that we don't often hear sermons on the parable of the weeds and the wheat or the parable of the fishing net should not cause us to shrink back from actually taking a look at what Jesus has to say. So I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, the 13th chapter. We're going to be reading the parable of the wheat and the weeds, more commonly referred to as the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the fishing net. So open your Bible, your Bible app. We'll follow along on the screen. If you'd like a Bible in a language you can actually understand, we have one as a gift to you. You can pick it up right now at Guest Central. It's the New Living Translation. We'd love to give you a copy. Now, just don't get in a habit of collecting our Bibles. So, Matthew 13, let's begin in verse 24. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, The field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where'd they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, and then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Skip down now to verse 36. Jesus is now with the disciples in the house explaining the parable. Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house and his disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Verse 47, the parable of the fishing net. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. 
And when the net was full, they dragged it to the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That's the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand these things? Yes, they said, we do. Okay, let's recap briefly these two stories, and then we're going to begin to apply Jesus' own explanation. The wheat and the weeds. The farmer, Jesus, he calls himself the son of man, planted good seed, that's the people of the kingdom, in his field, which represents the world that he owns. But at night, as the workers slept, an enemy, the devil, planted weeds in the wheat, that is, people who belong to him. Now, wealthy landowners often controlled most of the rural land throughout the Roman Empire, and their estates were worked by either free peasants or slaves. And the audience would have been filled, very likely, with rural farmers who, who were workers on these estates. And so they would have immediately identified with Jesus in the story. Now, the wheat crop began to grow, but so did the weeds or the tares. Now, the most, the most basic staple in the Palestinian diet was bread, and so wheat used for the flour was most important. But a very poisonous weed known as darnel, commonly translated as tares, also grew, and it looked just like wheat in the early stages and could only be distinguished uh, from it when the grain, uh, the, the ears of, of grain actually appeared. And so weeds in the wheat were not just a nuisance, they were actually a threat to the crop and ultimately to their very survival. The farmer's workers were somewhat surprised to find that uh, the field was actually full of weeds. And so they asked if they should pull up the weeds, and the farmer said, oh, this is the work of the enemy, and no, they should not attempt to pull up the weeds because that would uproot the wheat as well. And then he instructed them to let the weeds and the wheat grow together till harvest. You see, in the kingdom age, the good people of God's kingdom and the evil people of the enemy's kingdom live and work and exist side by side and often look the same. At the harvest, the end of this present evil age, the harvesters or the angels will separate the weeds from the wheat. The weeds being anyone who sins and does evil, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace to be burned. The wheat, he calls the righteous, or those who live rightly. And they're stored in the barns, or they shine like the sun. And then Jesus illustrated the similar principle in the parable of the fishing net. Remember we said that the parables often go in pairs. Jesus likened the kingdom to a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught every kind of fish. Not fishing like we think of, you know, casting a, a, a rod and a reel on Lake Peoria or wherever you fish around here. I don't know. Not at all. They, they fished with nets. And when that net was full, it was dragged to the shore, and the good fish were selected out, thrown into crates. The bad fish were thrown away. And Jesus said, likewise, at the end of the present age, the angelic harvesters are going to separate the right living ones, the righteous, from those that are evil, and they're thrown into the furnace. Now, we've been saying 
that the parables are a compelling call to action to the church. And I think these two stories are a powerful call to us uh, to action. And the action is, don't be surprised on two accounts. The two kingdoms coexist, and everyone will ultimately meet their maker. Let's unpack those two calls to action. First, don't be surprised because the two kingdoms coexist. Both parables are teaching us that the two kingdoms coexist now. God's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. Good and evil, light and darkness, exist side by side until the end of the age when Jesus returns. The weeds and the wheat will continue to grow together until the harvest. The good and the bad fish will continue to be in the same net until the harvest. And so he's telling us, let's acknowledge that there's a continuity and presence to both good and bad. This is the new normal. In the present state of things, God's kingdom has a mixed character, and that is his design. You see, the audience had been anticipating the arrival of God's kingdom, and they saw the day of the Lord as a time of sweeping judgment against sin and unrighteousness and injustice and lawlessness and oppression, you know, against the uh, where where the poor and the weak and the marginalized had been had been oppressed or or marginalized. They saw that the time of God's favor, the day of the Lord, was was going to like put all that stuff aside. All things wrong was going to be done away. The revelation of, of the kingdom in the Old Testament was this catastrophic apocalyptic event when when God's enemies would be forever finally destroyed, ushering in a a time of universal and worldwide peace and blessing and prosperity. And so Jesus' contemporaries were quite confused when he came announcing that the kingdom was here uh, because none of their expectations materialized. Everything looked like it was going on the same as before. Rome still ruled and occupied the land. Oppression and injustice still prevailed. Sickness and disease were still rampant. The poor and the marginalized were still poor and marginalized. It didn't look like anything had changed. And so Jesus is now re-educating his listeners. The kingdom's here, but it also overlaps the present evil age. The enemy's kingdom. The kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of sin and evil. Good and evil live side by side until the end of time when there's going to be this Second uh, coming, when Jesus returns and the angels harvest the, the, the crop, when, when Jesus consummates or bring to, brings to completion the kingdom in a universal worldwide sense as foreseen by the prophets. You see, the audience thought if the kingdom of God was going to come, then it was surely the end of evil. But Jesus' coming surprised them. Sadly, Christians today make the very same mistake. We assume that because evil and sin are still present, that God must not be here after all, or that God isn't good, or that God isn't powerful. Those are the three biggest powerful lies that the enemy uses against people uh, to convince them that God's kingdom really isn't here. But Jesus is saying, I'm the farmer, the field is mine. The earth and all of its people belong to me, King Jesus. I'm the rightful owner of everything, but we have a very real enemy a personal enemy called the devil, and he is a squatter. A squatter is a person who settles on land that they have no right to, and they work it for their advantage. And Jesus said the enemy is a squatter. 
And don't be surprised when you bump into his kingdom. Both of them are here simultaneously. Don't be surprised. But sadly, instead of learning the lesson from the story, Christians today continue to be surprised. They're surprised that people are captive to sin and do evil things. They're surprised that people still get sick and suffer and even die prematurely. Christians are surprised when families blow up and and calamities happen. Uh, Accidents take place and innocent lives are lost or there's still inequality and injustice around the world and and that people, especially women and children, are marginalized or oppressed in cultures or people of faiths are are minimalized. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. The fundamental nature of life in my kingdom is that these things are going to coexist until the end. Don't ever think that these things mean that God is not present, that God is not good, or that God is not powerful. God is good, God is present, and God is powerful. But the weeds and the wheat grow together. The good and the bad fish swim in the same net. Now, I'm not surprised, but I am saddened that in the kingdom age, the church has also spent a great deal of time, energy, and resources on trying to figure who's in and who's out. Who's a weed and who's a wheat? Who's a good fish? Who's a bad fish? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer or not? Are you in or are you out? I mean, you, you, no doubt you're, you're familiar with this uh, approach to life as well. Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Are, are, have you? Have you? Are, are you in? Are you out? What camp are you in? And I believe that these types of questions and the amount of energy that the church invests in answering them reflect the Western society to reflect our tendency towards bounded sets. In a bounded set, an object is either in or it's out. Let me illustrate it's, it's, as far as this categorization. An apple is always an apple, right? You know, apples may be Macintosh or wine sap. They may be Pink Lady or Honeycrisp. And you all probably like different kinds. They may be red, they may be yellow, they may be green, or some combination thereof. But everyone knows that an apple is always an apple, it's never a potato. But could Jesus, in suggesting that we allow the weeds and the wheat grow together, be calling our attention to another way of looking at things? As contrasted to a bounded set, a centered set takes the focus off of determining who's in or who's out. Uh, of a certain category, as if everything in life is static and unchanging. But rather, in a centered set, we're defined by our movement. A person or object is either moving towards or away from the center. And in Christianity, I believe the critical question is not necessarily where you've crossed the line or whether you're in or out or whether you've prayed the prayer or not, but rather, are you moving towards Jesus or away from him? What direction are you moving? And I would suggest that we, we should just stop judging whether people are in or out. Move, you know, stop trying to decide who's in the kingdom. Are they a wheat or are they a weed? Are they a good or a bad fish? Stop judging, trying to decide who's in and who's not, who's close and who's far away. Now, Jesus once said, the two verses that almost everybody that's in or out of the church uh, can quote back to you. Probably the two most famous verses in all the Bible in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 2. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. 
for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is a standard by which you will be judged. How many of us have ever heard in any kind of spiritual conversation the retort back to us, judge not, lest you be judged? Yeah, we all have. Now, certainly, these two verses are a very challenging text, and it's not my purpose this morning to unpack them in total. And no doubt there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of possible suggestions on what Jesus actually meant here. But the word judge, as it's used by Jesus here, based on the, its usage through the rest of the New Testament, is not in the sense of forbidding us to discriminate at all. Three verses later, he tells us, don't throw your pearls to swine, which involves some level of moral and spiritual discernment. So he can't be saying, don't use discernment. But I think he's meaning, don't come to an adverse conclusion about someone. And he's saying, we never have a right to issue a final judgment or to condemn or to pass a sentence on someone. Well, they're a weed and they're a weed. They're a good fish and they're a bad fish. Jesus said, you're forbidden to do that. Here's why. We never have any way of knowing what's inside a person's heart. We don't know their intention or their motive. And when we presume to occupy the place of the one who alone can judge and will through his agents, the angels at the end of the age, then we are patently wrong. And so I think part of the message is Jesus is telling us, stop trying to do God and the angels job. It's not our job to judge the weed and the wheat. Let them grow. Don't judge the good and the bad fish in the net. Let them be. We're going to let Jesus and the angels do the job of judging at the end of the age. Our job is to let the wheat and the weeds grow together, to let the good and the bad fish coexist. In the meantime, I think the compelling call to the church is to create an atmosphere of non-judgmental acceptance where the weeds and the bad fish can have an opportunity to actually hear the life-changing, compelling good news of the gospel where the good news can actually be heard as good news, not judging and condemning, but it can be perceived as good news, where, where, where the weeds and the bad fish can actually understand and experience the love and the mercy and the goodness and the power of God before they're turned off by our judgmentalism. Where those who are far away can be moving towards the center, who is Jesus. That's not to say that praying a sinner's prayer or a prayer of commitment of giving your life fully to Jesus is not unimportant. It's just to say that the journey is made up of thousands of small steps, not a one-time definitive statement, I'm in or I'm out. It's a matter of movement. Are we moving towards Jesus or away? And I think we just need to start loving people right where they are instead of trying to fix them and get them to stop all their weed-like activity. Trying to change them from a bad fish to a good fish. Let's just love them right where they are. Stop. You know, we've spent so much energy trying to get the, the people to stop sinning and clean up their act instead of pointing them to Jesus and trusting him to do the job of cleaning up the act. Don't pull up the weeds in the weed. You're going to ruin it. If you try to get de-weed the weeds, you're going to ruin the wheat. Let them grow together. So I think our call, first and foremost, is to love people, period. Love people, period. Paul said to his understudy Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the purpose of all my instruction is that believers would be filled with love. 
God's love is the unique message that we have. God's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere. That The Father's love is what we want people to experience. And so often people outside the church can't because all they've heard is our judgment. And I think Jesus is giving us a compelling message, friends. Let's, let's point people to Jesus at the center of a circle of historical truth and, and not judge them and trust the Holy Spirit to do his job of conviction. Love is the most powerful force in all the universe. Now, love doesn't mean approving or even agreeing with everything people do or the choices they make or the values they hold or the decisions that govern their lives or their families or their businesses. You just don't have to live that way. Just choose to live in a God-honoring way. But neither do we, at the same time, need to feel compelled to pull up the weeds. Straighten them out. Post your opinions on Facebook. Tweet about it. Blog about it. Show everyone why your opinion about the upcoming election is the right opinion. We just don't have to do that stuff. We're not compelled. Just live as a wheat plant. Just live. And don't uproot the, the weeds. We are not God's police force. We're just supposed to love people. Show them the Father's love. Treat them the way you would like to be treated. Forgive them the way you would like to be forgiven. Value and respect them because they're created in the image and nature of God. Embrace them as being worthy of respect and dignity because they're human creation. And that will keep the church busy for a long time. Serve them. You know, it's it's said that people really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So let's just serve them in love. Let's listen to them. Let's not condemn them. People's lives are complicated and messy. And you know, we just disrespect them when we dish out a little bumper sticker answer to their complicated, messy lives as if we know exactly what they're going through. We don't. Just listen and share the love of God with them and include them and invite them in a compassionate and genuine way. Let them taste of the goodness of God that he's deposited in your life. Let them hear your story of deliverance and redemption and forgiveness and restoration. Let it be like a salt lick where they just come and lick the salt and then they get really thirsty for what it is you have. And then you can begin to pray for them. I trust that many of you are praying for your five friends who need the move of God in their life. Continue to pray for them. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to do his job. We plant, we water, but the Holy Spirit makes the seed grow. And so we trust the Holy Spirit is going to move people who are far away to close. We trust him to convict them, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't have to convict. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We let God do the job that the church has been trying to do for centuries. We live a life reflecting the nature and character of Christ this inexhaustible, never-ending love, and we let the Spirit bring conviction. And then as a midwife, we're going to help people navigate what does this mean? What does this conviction mean that I'm experiencing? What does God's Word have to say about it? And we may be privileged at that point to, to cross the bridge to then lead someone in a prayer of repentance and submission and surrender to the Lord Jesus. So let's stop judging. Let's start loving And let's trust the Holy Spirit to cause the seeds of the gospel of the kingdom that we've sown to germinate and grow and bring fruit. The second call to action is this. Don't be surprised because everyone will meet their maker. 
Now, these two parables speak clearly about the judgment at the close of the age and a separation of good from evil people. It wasn't going to happen immediately. It's going to come at the end of the age. You see, the audience was expecting God's judgment to come immediately when the Messiah came bringing the kingdom. But Jesus is teaching that God's kingdom does indeed involve a judgment of all people, but it, but it takes place at the end of this present evil age. And at that judgment, there will be a separation of good from bad, of righteous from unrighteous, of from godly and evil people. Jesus went on to explain this in Matthew 25, the, uh, when he told the in detail a, a description of the glorious throne judgment. The Apostle Paul picked up on this theme in the book of Romans, the 14th chapter, when he said, our works are going to be tested. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, everybody should get prepared to meet their maker because everybody's got to give an account of their life to God. And then, of course, in the closing book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter, the Apostle John described for us there what scholars call the great white throne judgment, where everybody, good and, and, and bad, uh, alive and dead, is, is called before the throne of God, and their lives are judged by the works that are written in the books. And so there is a very real judgment coming. Now, I understand that these pronouncements make people uncomfortable still today, don't they? They're kind of sobering. People change the subject as soon as you bring it up. We don't like to think even at some level that a good and gracious and loving God would judge the wicked. And so somehow, honest and critical thinking about the judgment uh, of, of all people at the end of the age, we push to the dusty corners of our mind and go on living our life as normal. But the truth is we have to do a very creative dance around Jesus' words in these two parables. If we're going to... Um, Avoid the subject of judgment. And that people don't believe it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There'll be a day when every person stands before the living God to give an account of their life. Consequently, we can't ever shrink back from informing people about our ultimate responsibility to stand before the living God. And so don't be surprised, Jesus said. You're going to face, you're going to face the maker. Everybody's going to face the music. Everybody's going to give an account to God of everything they've done in their life. Don't shrink back because it's not happening immediately. Don't shrink back. It's going to happen someday. So these two stories are a powerful call to the church. In the kingdom age, stop judging, start loving because the two kingdoms coexist. God is present. God is powerful. God, God is good. It may not look like it because the two ages coexist. And while there may be a delay in judgment, delay is not, not denial. It is coming. And Jesus said, don't be surprised when you're pushed back on these two issues. So church, this is our compelling call. Lord, uh, we just thank you that, that you're giving us kind of the basic marching orders for, for life in your kingdom and we're humbled that, that you actually said that we got to get the stories of, uh, of, the, of the kingdom in the parables or otherwise we don't get anything. And so I, I pray that our church family, Lord, would grow in an understanding of the nature of your kingdom and the life you've called us to live so that we could more fully experience real life ourselves and we could be agents of the good news to others around us. Lord, I, I pray that you'd put power on your word to our lives. Wherever we need it, touch us, change us, Heal us, convict us, encourage us is our prayer in your name. And Lord, now as we offer to you our hearts in song, 
and our gifts in this offering. We pray you'd receive them for what they are, tokens that say we love you. In your name, amen.